Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Have you heard about Moo Money? Moo Money? Moo Money is a rewards program that lets you earn cash every time you buy real milk. I use mine to buy movie tickets. Movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. It was a musical. Uh-huh. Anyway, just head to MooMoney.com to start earning moolah. Got it. Moolah. Hurry, or everything I told you will be moot. Oh, please, no more moos. Someone's a little moody. Open to legal residents of the state of California, 18 years of age or older. Visit MooMoney.com for official rules, terms, and conditions. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and you're listening to Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every week in my New York City apartment. Mentoring Moments is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink Payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. And today, joining me at the table is Joe Piazza here from California. We've all heard it. Marriage is hard. How hard is it and what can we do about it? And how do we do it when we're working until 9 p.m. and we're addicted to our screens, living far away from our families and our support systems? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Marriage, mistresses, and mountains. Because sitting across the table from me, here from California, is Joe Piazza, award-winning fiction and nonfiction author and the best-selling author of the new book, How to Be Married, subtitle, What I Learned from Real Women on Five Continents About Surviving My First Really Hard Year of Marriage. It's an eye-opening guide for real women on real marriage. So looking for answers while in her first year of marriage, 35-year-old Joe traveled around the world crowdsourcing marriage advice and wisdom from women from different cultures. She's sharing everything she learned in this eye-opening guide for real women on real marriage. And today she's here to share everything she knows. So Joe, this is a real treat that you're here and you're about to have a baby and to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And to be here from California. So thank you. I'm so I'm so happy you're here. And I'm really excited to get into just to dive in with you. So I'm going to do that. And I'll start with my mentoring moment. I was in St. Bart's and we rent this home that we we've, we've rented for years. And it's always so peaceful and quiet and it's overlooking the beach. And this year there's construction going on right below us and it's not noisy. So we're fine. It doesn't bother us. But one day it's like four o'clock and I'm sitting on the patio, we're looking out at the beach and jackhammers start up. And I'm like, is that nerve? And it, they kept going on and going on and going on. It's that nerve wracking. Like that, That's like it's terrible. It's vibrating, right? Yeah. Like you're, you feel vibration. Into your bones. Yeah, you do. I mean, it's like, okay, stop it, stop it. So after about two hours, I email the management company and say, you know, this is what's going on. Can you please ask the construction company to stop the jackhammering while we're here? They see us coming up up the road. It's a tiny little road. They see us coming up. So when they see us coming, could they stop? And we'll stop and even remind them that we're coming. And we're not even here that much because we don't hang out at the house that much. Right, of the course, day. you're out. And they're like, we're so sorry. Of course we will. They write back and they say, we talked to the construction company. Now, keep in mind, 
and and I want to be a French woman in my next life. So I love French. We all want to be right. French women. Because <laughs> I want to eat lives. smoke. I want to exactly. eat cheese smoke and not get fat. Yes. <laughs> That's it, right? Yes. But, and they and they think they have the best marriage advice ever. As right. a oh, really? Oh, I can't wait to hear yeah. that. So I know that there is a different mentality about pleasing, right? So I'm very so I'm, I'm very nice in my email. They write back. We'll take care of it. The next day, 7 a.m., Jack it starts Hammer. at yeah, 7 a.m. Oh, my gosh. So I email, and I'm up, but still, I don't want to listen to this. So I email them, and I say, you know, this is just not acceptable. Before that email, the first day, they write back to me and say, we've talked to the construction company. They promise they're not going to jackhammer while you're there. And we, the owner of the house, is going to pay for your rental car all week. Wow. I'm, that's what I said. I'm like, You're okay. Like, I should always be this French. Right. Well, it gets better. <laughs> so then the next day the jackhammer starts. So I write to them and I said, you promised that the construction company wouldn't be doing this. They're back out there. They write to us and say, you know what? We talked to the owner and instead of just doing your rental car, we're, and we're not going to do the rental car, which was about 10% of our total fee for the house. We're going to give you 15% off and we'll talk to the construction company. A half an hour later, before anybody could do anything, they write back and they say, you know, we're going to give you 25% off instead. I'm like, okay. Then they write back without me saying anything. In addition to that 25%, if you don't want to move out of the villa for the weekend, which we never said we wanted to move out of this home for the weekend, we'll give you another 25% off for those three days. Wow. I, that's what I said. So I'm sitting there like, okay, okay. And as this was all going on, I thought, sometimes I always want to control the situation. Like think what I want, and all I really wanted was for the jackhammers to stop. And they did stop. I wasn't asking for money back. I wasn't asking. But sometimes when you let other people figure out the solution, the solution is better and than that other people feel like they're in control of the situation. Exactly. Too. Exactly. Yeah. So that was my mentoring moment. I love that. That love sometimes that. it's just putting, I'm not saying not say anything because I did want the jackhammers to stop, but not micromanage the moment. Right. But not micromanage. I mean, I know I personally try to micromanage everything, but I think it's nice to sometimes be surprised by other people taking control of a situation. It and is. other people handling it and realizing you don't have to micromanage everything. I mean, in your life, and you were on this wonderful vacation when you were doing this, but I think it's an amazing lesson for your career as well. And so I've been a manager and I've worked with a lot of managers who have micromanaged their employees, almost to the point of being exhausted, to the point of their employees saying, I can't take this anymore. I, I think I can't work with you any longer. And so it's such a good lesson. And then also a lesson as someone who's about to give birth to think about for how to handle your kids and how, how to handle, you know, putting it out there and letting them have their own little bit of control. Oh, for sure. You know, my daughter is 24 and I really try to stay out of her life. No, I want her to know that I'm there if she needs me. I'm always there. Right. Of course. But I'm pretty realistic in knowing that no matter what I tell her to do anyway, she's going to do what she, what she believes. wants. Exactly. Yeah. We all did, right? We all, we all and did. And we all do right. still, of course. And so I try not to even go there and just try to find happiness. And I think as a manager of people as well, it, if you are micromanaging, you're not doing what you're best at doing anyway. What, what is no. it? What is your skill? Not I don't know anyone who needs a skill of micromanager. It's, Absolutely. Right. Not. I mean, it's like, that's just not an appealing skill, but what is your skill that got you there? 
or the skill that you want to learn and, that's and what grow. you should be focusing right. on. Instead so like, of, I want to hear about these French women. Oh my gosh, and, <laughs> these French women. So I, I, I just, I just finished this book on marriage where I crowdsourced marriage advice from around the world. And of course I, I had, I had to go to Paris and I had to interview French women because French women often think that they know how to do everything better than everyone else, not just American women, everyone else and better than French men. And they had so much interesting advice for me about marriage. And number one was their, their advice was to, be your husband's mistress, which sounds terrible when you first just throw it out there. But then they really unpacked it and they dissected it. And what they told me was that it's about making a choice to, and I think that this is relatable to a marriage, it's relatable to a relationship and to a career, to all of these things. Making a conscious choice to choose that person every day. Making a conscious choice then to choose your career the other day could be the other way to look at it to not just let it be a thing that unfolds and gets stale and bored, but oh, I love that. I, I love that to make it continually exciting and things get it. Things start being boring because we let them be boring. And they said that they're like, you Americans, you think that marriage, the marriage, the wedding is the engagement is the prize is the goal. You don't talk about the journey afterwards. You don't talk about the adventure. Afterwards. Which is what your book is all about. Which in my book is about the journey. My book is about the actual marriage, the next 50 years. Um, as you say, as you're into year one. <laughs> we are well into year one now. Right. But that was the point. Like, I don't, it's funny because I've been recording some interviews talking about the book and people have introduced me as a marriage expert and I'm quick to stop them. I'm like, no, 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 no. I wrote this book because I have no idea how to be married. I wrote the book to try to figure it out. And I think that we can look for, we should be looking for wisdom from other women from all over the world. And that was my goal, to crowdsource marriage advice from around the world, bring back what could work for us here in the States, and also to bring all of these different women's voices into the book to find out what do other cultures think about marriage. We're in a unique place in America right now that this is really the first generation of women that doesn't have to get married for any reason other than because we want to. We don't need a man to have a baby. We don't, we can support ourselves. We can protect ourselves. And that creates a lot of pressure when you could just leave. Before we continue with Joe, I want to do a shout out to Braintree. So are you aware of this thing called social spending? Using a service like Venmo, people can, for example, split the cost of a night out or send a birthday gift or just connect with friends through a shared economy. It's a new way of looking at spending. Currently in limited release with just a couple lines of code, Braintree lets your business accept Venmo. It's another example of the opportunities that open up when you rethink payments. Braintree, rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. And now back to our conversation with Joe Piazza. And why did you get married? I got married because I think it's nice to have one best friend in a world that's hard to have one person to have your back. I, uh, I didn't get married. I got married on my 35th birthday. Um, I met my husband shortly before that. We got married very quickly. I know. I read your book three months. You were three like, together for We three were months. engaged in three months and we were together for nine months before our marriage. But I had reached a point where I was pretty cool if I didn't get married at all. Um, I felt really great about myself. 
felt very strong and independent and capable. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that women should wait until their early 30s to get married. I think it's a, a great time to, we talk to men a lot about, you should feel safe in your career and you should feel successful before you propose. We don't talk to women like that. And I think that we should. Instead, we tell women, find a man who's financially independent. Find a man who's successful. And I'd like to flip that script a little bit and say, you know, make sure that you're in a really great place. Right. It's really finding yourself, right? And it's it, finding and that yourself. journey continues, as you will see. I find myself every day. Every day. In your marriage. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. just in ju- just who I am, it changed. I'm not, not, not every day do I change, but new, there are new discoveries. And I'm a different person than, or I reacted to things differently than I did 10 years ago. Absolutely. And, you know, you'll see in 10 years you'll react differently. But at least when you're in your 30s, I think you have more of a you're more sound to start with, right? You have You've a developed. foundation. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you have a foundation. I think, and that leads me to my other reason for being married. The reason that I, I like the idea of marriage. It's nice to have someone have, it's nice to have a witness to that, to a witness to your growth, a witness to the person that you are and someone to see you go through all of those changes. I think it's important. Oh, it's, it's so, I remember years ago, because I've never been the type that wanted to get married. So right, similar exactly. to you, right? Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't need it. Right. It wasn't that I have to, and I have friends who were very much, I have to get married. I have to get married. That was their overarching. Oh, same. I wasn't opposed same. to it, but I wasn't like on the search for someone no. to marry. And I really, I was struggling with why, this is after my, after my first marriage failed when mm-hmm. I was getting, I was divorced. And I was really struggling with why would I want to get married again? Of course. And I wasn't yeah. bitter, but it was like, I'm, I'm trying to find the value. I already had my daughter. Mm-hmm. I had a great job. I didn't need the finances. Right. So, right. and where's the value in this? Right. And my, and my therapist had a lot of great things mm-hmm. about it, just as, as you were saying that you want that person. But then she said something that stuck with me because it's in such simple terms, but it's not it's not, I'm going to say what it is and I'll explain it. She said, a marriage is you both being there for each other. So she said, so I'm going to put it really simply. You hate to take out the garbage. He takes out the garbage together. You got it done together. You get mm-hmm. through life together. Now I'm not saying we need to take out the garbage. So that was, yeah, that, right. that's not the, what the story the, is about. It's a metaphor for right. it. Yeah. That together you've accomplished the task mm-hmm. that you don't want to do that. He doesn't want to do this together. You do that. And I found that so many times in my marriage, I've been married, I've been married now for 11 years. Um, and there are so many days when it's the simplest things that I think it really is that combination of two people getting through life together, whether it's stuff that goes mm-hmm. on with your kids, whether it's job stuff, whether it's buying a home, having the emotional support of somebody else. And someone to pick up that slack. Yes. Uh, when, yeah, there's... The garbage is a really interesting metaphor because garbage can be a metaphor for anything in right. life, right? I know, like I don't want to deal with booking our frequent flyer miles. I hate that's your garbage. Flyer miles. <laughs> that's right. Frequent flyer miles are my garbage, right. and my husband loves it. And frankly, he's. Oh, so- I need to call him. You should. And <laughs> he, he will also happily sort all of your frequent flyer miles with a smile on his face. But he's so good at it that we haven't paid for a domestic flight in over a year. It's amazing. That's great. I want nothing to do with that situation. <laughs> that is my garbage. And it is. It's true. It's it's having a real, actual partner to help you get through life because life is hard. Life is hard and it's going to throw curveballs at you. And it's nice to have this one person that's there that has your back. 
I, I agree 100%. I'm going to circle back to this because I want to talk more about the book, but I want to get to your mentoring moment. Yes. So what is your yes, mentoring moment? Yes, and my mentoring moment. moment, you know, it has, I wanted to talk about something that has nothing to do with my book that's, but that kind of shaped me and, and set me up for being in a place to where I ended up getting my dream job, which allowed me to write the book, which then I also met my husband during. So I was working for a while as a magazine editor at a job that I didn't necessarily love, but it paid me really, really well. It was probably the highest paying, highest ranking job that I'd ever had. And my editor in chief lost his job. He was laid off and they brought in someone to oversee me, a boss who's Morals and ethics, I just completely did not agree with. And from day one, he was asking me to do things with this magazine that I was incredibly in- uncomfortable doing. Um, I mean, I went to journalism school, I believe in hardcore reporting, hardcore journalistic ethics. And these things really made me cringe. I felt so uncomfortable, but I also felt very safe in my job. I liked having the financial security. I knew that I wasn't going to lose my job. I was terrified of what was going to come next. And and I was single and supporting myself and paying my own rent, paying my car payment. And the safe option would have been to stay and to kind of suck it up and accept these things that he was asking me to do that I didn't feel comfortable with. And I did a lot of soul searching about it and ended up taking the unsafe option. I walked into his office and called down you know, the head of the company and said, I'm not going to do this. And you need to not only, and this brings me back to your story because I did kind of micromanage the situation. Not only am I not going to do this, but I need you to fire me because I want out of my non-compete. And I spelled out exactly what I wanted in that office and got it and stood up to these men who were in power and who were in charge. But also really felt like I was being true to myself and my own ethics and my own morality and the kind of career that I wanted to have. And then I took this leap. I had no job lined up. I had never left a job without another job lined up. I was terrified. And I just kind of threw it out in the universe. And a week later, I got a call to be the managing editor of Yahoo Travel which was my dream job. And did you know anybody at Yahoo before that? Or did you connect the dots? I didn't, no, no. Um, And I I had a friend who who had gone to Yahoo who went to the travel department, but I I didn't know anyone prior to that. So I had no idea that this was coming, this was going to happen. I was prepared to get rid of my fancy apartment, get rid of my fancy life, and figure out something else completely different. Uh, but I feel like because I, I took that risk and I did the thing that I felt was right, something ended up coming along that was so much better. And I talked to a lot of young women about about their careers, and I use that as as my mentoring moment. And I say, you know, you just the media industry and indus- industries in general, as we're watching technology take over so many different things, everything is getting harder and different, and you need to figure out who you are, what your values are, and what you can and cannot take in the workplace. And you have to stand up for yourself. Because if you don't do that, at the end of the day, a lot of these companies go away. Exactly. I've I've worked for so many, I think 80% of the companies I've worked for since I graduated from college don't exist any longer. And that's been how many years? 15. I'm my 15-year reunion. I'm not going to make it because I'm probably going to be giving birth. Right. (laughs) 
But um, that's a that's, good reason not to. It's make a good it. reason. Yes. But that's saying a lot. That you know, you slave away and you think that your job is your everything, and it's not. And I think one of the great points you just made is, a lot of times we stay where it is more comfortable, mm-hmm. and we'll deal with as long as we're not being abused. We'll deal with and we'll deal or with things that aren't right. Or even when you are being abused. Yeah, yes, which is, I mean, yes. Sometimes people stay in these really difficult work situations when you're being treated terribly. I've been there. Been there. We've all been there. And you, because whatever reason, you know, you need the money for this, and you don't. You need the health insurance. Feel secure, right. Yeah. And you don't feel secure about getting another job. Your self confidence isn't so great, and I think that when we are in the wrong place and we think we're staying for a good reason, it's not because there's something else out there that is better. There's always something else out there. Always. And I think a lot of times too, we feel like we're going to disappoint someone. I'm going to disappoint Mm -hmm. my employees. If I have a website, I'm going to disappoint the people who come to my website, who get the information from me. If I'm an author, if I don't write another book, I'm going to disappoint all of the people. Disappoint my fans. Yes, exactly. Yes. But they, they, Life goes on. Life goes on. Nobody cares. We had this with B. Arthur, who is it? Do you know know B. Arthur? Oh, yeah. I love B. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, So she... um, B. helped me find my Skype therapist. Oh, really? That's that's amazing. great. So everybody who has heard B, because B's been on the show, Mm. B is a therapist, a licensed therapist, and she had an online therapy um, company as well. But... She's, she says all the time, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. They care for a minute and yeah. then they go on. We all go yeah. on. And it's nobody not, cares. But we're all living in our head. Yes. That's the thing. We're all living in our heads. We think that like everything that we're doing is so important. It's not. No one I, is talking no. about you. No one is even thinking about you for more than five minutes. And it's the best advice I could give to my 20 year old self who was so self-conscious. I was so self-conscious. I thought everyone was judging me all the time. No one is giving you a second thought. And it's, it's, and it's not that people don't care. Life is just filled with things, right? So we can't mm-hmm. stick on you for so long. Well, no, and everyone else is thinking the same thing. Everyone else is thinking yes. about them. So are we narcissistic? Yes. <laughs> yes. We're all narcissistic. Right. I just made a claim earlier before we started the you know, show. I told Joe we, I wasn't narcissistic. As much as we Maybe want to we say are. that we're not narcissistic, right. human beings are. are narcissistic. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was, that was my mentoring moment. I was so scared. and But then something better came along. And I, I think about that a lot when it comes to relationships too, every time I had a bad breakup, something better came along. It always does. Always does. But you think that it's not. You yes. think that this this is the worst thing that has ever happened to you. Because you don't know what else is out you have there. No right? idea. You only know what you know. And the unknown is really, really scary. It is. And, and one of the things that and I'm trying to embrace more of is you know, just getting comfortable with not knowing. With the not knowing. And when I when I took the Yahoo job, I I also kind of knew that Yahoo wasn't going to stick around forever. And let's be honest, the, the cards were kind of showing. Right. But I also thought, wow, I'm like, I'm going to get to travel around the world for two years. Look it on my resume. Look it on my resume. But more than I'm like, I'm, I'm going to really enjoy life. Like, this is great. And I get to build something really cool. And so if they, if they had told me in the very beginning, all right, two years, your website, then your website will go away, like so many websites. But you will travel around the world, write a book about it, and meet your husband. I'd say, all right, cool. There's a good ROI on those yeah, two years, right? Great ROI <laughs> on those two years. Feel free to lay me off via text message while I'm climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Right. <laughs> That's right. Which is what happened. Really? Yeah. So wait, tell, tell, I tell this story. Yeah. Well, well, we kind of we knew that it was coming at Yahoo Travel. We knew that it was going to go away. Likely, all of their media properties were going away. And I was on this trip to Africa 
partially for work and then partially researching my book. So I was on the side of Mount Kilimanjaro when I got a text message from one of my coworkers saying that it was all over. It was done, which is a nice place to get a layoff text message. Because there's nothing else you can do but keep climbing the mountain. <laughs> you got to keep going up. You got to keep there's going up. There's something in the right? I got to keep I'm, I'm going gotta up. I've got to keep I'm going, going up. up that mountain. And you just do it. You just do it. And then you figure out the next big thing. An MBA from a globally recognized and celebrated business school is achievable on your terms. Find your fit among the Kellogg School of Management's innovative portfolio of MBA programs, including one-year, two-year, part-time, joint degree, and executive options. Wherever you are in your career and your life, there's a Kellogg program designed to help you succeed. Visit kellogg.northwestern.edu MBA. This is Norman Lear with my great sidekick, Paul Hip. Good to be here with you, Norman. On All of the Above. That's the name of my podcast, All of the Above. And uh, it's called All of the Above because we're going to talk about All of the Above. There isn't anything sacrosanct. There's nothing too above us or uh, below or us. Or below us. Well, certainly nothing too below us. But we have had guests you cannot believe. Yeah. Guests. Julie Louis-Dreyfus, amazing. Yes. And America Ferrara. Jared Carmichael. Yes. Oh, Amy Poehler. How did we overlook? We didn't overlook Amy Poehler. I was saving her for last. And Charles Barkley, I was saving him for first, actually, because I didn't declare up first. I get to hang out with this guy. And this is your chance to hang out with Norman Lear a little bit here and some of these great guests. God, I wish I was you hanging out with Norman Lear. Yeah. <laughs> Son of a gun. See? That must be exciting. It's the yeah. best. He's, oh. I'm telling you. Don't miss all of the above with Norman Lear. Download new episodes every week on the Podcast One app or subscribe at podcastone.com. So continuing the conversation here on Mentoring Moments, we're brought to you by a new podcast called Fan Club. Okay, so we're all fans of something. But why do we love what we love? That's what Fan Club is all about. In each episode, you'll hear from brilliant people across pop culture, musicians, artists, chefs, and scientists talking about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the future. Subscribe to Fan Club now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now back to our conversation with Joe. There's very few things in life that you can't overcome. I mean, there are it's some true. things, right? I mean, there are, there are really bad, horrible things that happen in life. But of let's course. put those aside. Let's just take the day-to-day things that we just spend so much time. And I'm guilty of it as well. You oh, know, we're all I, I could sit here and preach to it. But there are days where it's like, okay, I just want to go under the covers because I just can't figure this out. Yeah, but we but, obsess over them. Yes. We and obsess. It's, it's, it's just a waste of time. Exactly. And energy. And my husband always reminds me that when I get into that mode, something bad happens to me because I'm not focused. So oh, I'll trip, I'll fall. Yeah. I'm, I'm notorious for doing those things. I run into everything. I was going to say, I run into yeah. walls. Especially now that I have this belly. Right, like you have more of an excuse. I have no idea how much room I take up. In a, I, I knocked over a woman's wine glass at the restaurant last with night. With your stomach? With my stomach. <laughs> That's hilarious. It was red wine. She was wearing a silk dress. Um, but thankfully people are kind to pregnant women. Right, right. So, you know, she <laughs> wasn't funny. that upset. She's like, I can get it dry cleaned. It's fine. But I had no, I didn't, I didn't even know I hit it. So I have a question for all of the young women out there, women of all ages who yeah. want to be authors. Yes. Any advice? How did you get started? Whatever you want to say about that. Well, it's so, it's interesting. I get asked that question so much and, um, I fell into it in a way. I was a journalist 
first. Um, I meet a lot of young women who are right out of college and they're like, I want, want to be an author. And I tell them, do something else. You don't have anything interesting to write about yet. I promise you. That's At great age advice. 20, That's you do, great you advice. are not interesting enough. There's one exception to that rule or my editor at Simon & Schuster just signed a book with a young Syrian girl. I think she's 11 or 12 who was in the recent Syrian bombing. Right. Well, that's different. She's interesting yes. enough. Yes. That's different. Most people, most 20 year olds are not. I agree. And so I tell them to do something else because you can always write books on the side to live your life. And, and then I say, just start writing. And so they're also, I also hear this all the time. I have an idea for a book. Great. Did you write it? So is that the first thing you do when you have an idea for a book, when you had an idea how to do, how to be married? When, well, my first book was, it was called Celebrity Inc., How Famous People Make Money. And I was 28, I think, when I had the idea for it. And I wrote the whole book because I didn't know. I didn't know if it was a book. And you don't know if it's a book. I agree. And I wrote the whole thing before I sold it. And I'm so glad that I did because it might have just been a long magazine article. Everyone thinks they have a book in them. A book is so much harder than you think it is. And so I tell people, make yourself write 2,000 words every day for two weeks of your book, and, get, and then we'll talk. If you can do it every day for two weeks, you may not yet be an author, but you may be on the path to writing a book. 90% of people do not get back to me after that. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And also, I think people think that writing a book, becoming an author, it's, it's kind of this, like thing to aspire to. It doesn't mean everyone should do it. It's hard. It's a tough business. Not everything should be a book either. I mean, I think that a lot of things should be, should be turned into a podcast or a documentary or a really great magazine article, but not everything has to be a book. I've had book ideas that I've started and I've had hundreds of book ideas that I've started and then scrapped, but you don't know what it's going to be until you try. I think one of your best pieces of advice is to write the book. I've write done it. book proposals before and I have agents now contacting me to do a book on yeah, mentoring moments, but I don't know what that, I, there, there are a couple great reasons for doing what you said. I think one is I don't know what I want the book to be. Exactly. Okay. So I don't know, and I don't want to be swayed by what they want the book to be because it will sell. Now, maybe at a different point in my life, that would have been a big point for me. Right. And I it won't be a good book though. Right. Because it's not what it's I not what do. You want to do. It's not, nope. it's not coming from my heart of what I want to do. Nope. And, you know, I learned that when I had, when I was an entrepreneur, I had a company and investors wanted to invest and they wanted to give me $5 million. And that's a big deal when you're, you know, startup. Yeah. But they wanted to turn the company around totally. And I wouldn't do it because I was like, I'd rather close the company mm -hmm. than do something. I'm at this point in my life. Now, if I were in my twenties or thirties, maybe I would have. Would have been totally different. Would because I'm totally right. Because it's a different point in my life. So let's talk about the book. So yes. tell, tell, yes. So tell, so how to be married. How to be married. Right. So what are some of the top points you want to share with people? It's so interesting. I um, really did interview, and I say we a lot. I wrote the book. My husband was with me, which was cool, and I wrote it in real time. So I wrote it and reported it during two weeks before our wedding to right before our first wedding anniversary, which was a pretty hefty deadline. And it was a big project. But I also think it was like going through marriage boot camp uh, because we had to confront all of these issues and ask each other hard questions. And the fact that we got to do it together so many times, he was with me for a lot of the trips. I was on my own a lot. Um, but the fact that we got to do it together made it so much better because we had both a male and female perspective 
in asking the questions. And men and women ask different questions. And you get different answers even if you ask the same question, which is really interesting because people respond to you. They respond to your gender differently. Uh, That's interesting. It is interesting. It makes perfect sense Um, when you think about it. But one of the most important things that I learned is that when you get married, you don't become one. And you have to maintain your independence and your own life outside of your marriage. Um, you should sleep apart from your spouse, you know, once a week, every other week. You should travel why on your is that? own. To I remember should... why life is better when they're there. I love um, that. To, to make, and to make them miss you a little bit. That was another piece of advice from the French women who know how to do everything in life better <laughs> than Americans. Um, to maintain that mystery and also to just have a moment of self-care, to take care of yourself. And so that advice actually came. I interviewed a lot of Orthodox Jewish women in Jerusalem about how do you take care of a marriage and children in a city that's so racked with political turmoil and uncertainty. And they said, you have to take care of yourself first. It's like what the flight attendants tell you on a plane, secure your own oxygen mask before you try to help anyone else. And that's hard because you think you're being selfish. People think we think, think we're being you're selfish. Being selfish. And you're you not. always think you're being selfish. No, but in order to take care of another person in a marriage or as a parent, or in a work environment to take care of your employees, you have to be in a really good place yourself and feel strong and feel good, and then you can secure everyone else's oxygen masks. So that was that was so interesting to me, and I also spent a lot of time with the polygamous tribes in the Samburu tribes and Maasai tribes in Tanzania and Kenya. And I went into it with so many misconceptions about what polygamy was. And I had to sit down and just kind of be schooled. And what is it? In everything that I didn't know. I mean, it's, it's a necessity in that kind of tribal society. It's often dictated by the women. Um, the first wife will often say, no, it's time to get a second wife because the women are doing so much work in marriage and it's not about sex. And that's the really interesting thing. Americans want to make everything about sex. This is not about sex. It's about division of labor because a marriage in a lot of tribal cultures is a partnership. Who is doing the work? Who's taking taking out out the the garbage? garbage. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Except a large burden of that work falls on the women. The women are the ones building the houses and fetching water from miles away and taking care of the farm animals and the children. And at a certain point, they can't handle it. And they're like, it's time to get a co-wife. It's time to get a second wife. But the amazing thing was the strength in the community among the women and how they did divide the labor among each other. And it reminded me of the fact that here in the States, we so often become these tribes of two. And it's like you, your husband, and your marriage against the world. And we also move far away from our support systems, from our families. Um, Nick and I live thousands of miles from his family in Milwaukee and my family in Philadelphia. And we don't know what we're going to do after we have this kid. We don't have that. We can hire people to help us, but we don't have a support system to help us. We don't have moms and aunties and even a lot of close friends around us. And I really began to understand the importance of community to a marriage for the first time when I spent time with these tribes women. And it sparked a conversation that says, hey, I think maybe we need to move back to the East Coast. And I think that's probably a thing that we will do. 
after this baby comes along because we need help. Before we continue with Joe, let me tell you about a new podcast called Fan Club. Okay, we're all fans of something. Me? I'm a fan of Alicia Keys because she's talented, powerful, and she's teaching her sons how to express their emotions. But with absolutely everything changing about the way we consume culture, the way fandom works is changing too. Fan Club is all about that change and why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on earth. Named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business and a three-time Emmy winner, Ross has continually explored fandom through his work at Viacom, which is the home of Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, and so many more iconic brands and shows that we all love. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure out the future. How are we going to watch, listen, and consume culture? He talks to a slew of brilliant people across the pop culture landscape. Musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, scientists. He talks about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things you love. Subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you are listening to the show. You're listening to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari. When Allie, my daughter Allie was born, my parents were living, they lived in Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh, and I lived in D.C. And my dad, at that point, he was in his late 60s, I had, he had an income tax business. So he really worked, and it was a small-time business, so he worked right. three months out of the year. He wasn't like the big-time accountant or anything. Yeah. So they would come and live with me for nine months out of the year. It's amazing. For five years. And we had enough space. There were times when it got a little close, but the rewards were so... So just so much bigger than so any huge. of the inconvenient that for me being like, you know, I don't want my parents around. It was just so freeing in mm-hmm. your mind. And it's an experience that my daughter, Allie, and my parents, it's, it's this bonding experience. They're so close. They exactly. must be so close. They are. Yeah. That you could never have. Now, I'm not suggesting everybody needs to have their parents or in-laws. No, but I think them. they should. But and it I, was fabulous. I think it's so interesting that you guys did that. I was so lucky. It's also rare. It's where, like, we've created this culture in the States that demonizes mother-in-laws. And I, my mother-in-law, Patsy, is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. She's maybe even better than my husband. She's fantastic. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. The best Patsy Astor story, and she'll be delighted that I'm sharing this, is right after we got engaged, I had a book coming out in my novel, The Knockoff. And she just stormed into the independent bookstore in Milwaukee and said, my future daughter-in-law has a book coming out and we will have an event here. That's great. And you had an event. My book publicist calls me and he's like, who's Patsy Astor? It's like Boswell's in Milwaukee just called me. I guess you're having an event in Milwaukee. And I'm like, she's a force of nature and she's wonderful. But so everybody listening to that, you need to go into your local bookstore and do this for how to be married. Do this for right. how to be married. We are, we're also, we have an event at Boswell's in Milwaukee because Patsy once again stormed in and told them we will have an event for how to be married. Um, but I think too often we demonize the mother-in-law. We demonize the idea of having our parents move back in with us. Um, and also we're living in these cities where we don't have any space anymore and moving so far away from them. I I would love to see us get back to the kind of culture where we embrace having different generations under the same roof. I think it's invaluable for the kids, too. Oh, it is. 
because you just learn so much. We, so we, sometimes much. my husband and I laugh now when my daughter does something and he'll be like, you know, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. She spent five years with your mother and father. Yeah. And it's, and it's, but the love that was between them, my dad used to tease with her and say, you know what's wrong with the world, honey? Parents. <laughs> they get in our way of having fun. I would come home. My daughter was like three. I would come home at 830 at night and my mom would be teaching her how to yodel. And, and I would be like, okay, mom, you over there, Allie has to go to bed. And my mother's like, but we're having so much we're having fun. having such a blast. Yeah. And one of the best things that I heard when I was in Northern Kenya with the Samburu women is this woman, woman looks at me, all these kids are running all over the place from you know very tiny infants to teenagers. And she just says, all of the women call, or all of the children call all of us mama. It doesn't matter whose is whose. We're all taking care of all of the kids. And that, I mean, it really struck me at that point. I wasn't pregnant yet. We had just started trying. Um, that I was about to spend $3,000 a month on daycare in San Francisco if I wanted to keep my like, high-powered editing digital consulting jobs. That was, that was my only answer. That was my only option. And I was like, there has to be something better than this. We have to try to figure this out. Because all you do is spend your time working really hard. Working really hard. And it's, and, it's, but then you feel guilty. Right. I mean, I already feel guilty. Yes. The baby's not even here yet. And I'm you like, do? what does the trade-off look like? You know, I can go back to work full-time working. When I was at Yahoo, I was working 80, 85 hours a week. Um, and I, I, don't know, I don't know the answer to that. We, uh, we've carved out this plan where I'm finishing my new novel and I'm taking a year of maternity leave. I think that's fabulous. To raise our son. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends have said to me, these are high powered career women and CEOs of startups. Like, oh my gosh, how can you take you a year You become irrelevant. Is that You become thing? irrelevant. That's not true. No one cares that I took a year off. There's like, like we said earlier, there's always something else out there. Yes. And yes. a year is just a year. And it'll be such a wonderful year of your life. So you're so lucky you're able to do it. A lot I'm of women so aren't able to do it. A lot of women it, are right? not able to do it. And I and count my blessings every day. And we, we also worked really hard to make it happen. Um, so we spent a lot less money last year to sock away enough to be able to do that, to be able to say this actually financially makes sense for us as a couple. But I'm also married to a guy who's like, when you have to do a little bit of work, when you have to do some writing, I'm here to take the baby. And looking at ways of making our partnership a little bit more equal in terms of who raises our son. Which is also a great thing. Which is also a great thing. It's another thing that we really spent a lot of time investigating with the book. Uh, we spent time in Sweden where they have amazing government-funded parental leave, 18 months split between the couple, you can take it however you want. 80% of your salary is paid. 80% of your salary is paid if you work full-time, work part-time, or are a consultant, which is incredible because um, that doesn't even happen when you're a full-time employee in the States. But it allowed the couples to figure out what a marriage of equals really looks like because the burden wasn't entirely on the woman. Right. I happen to be taking the burden. Burden's the wrong word, but I happen to be taking it on this time around, next time around, I might be in a job that I love and it'll be my husband. Right. But you're making that you, you as a couple are making the choice. We made the choice right. together. No one's exactly. saying that you have no to stay home. Your husband's you have going to, to stay work. home. You have to do this. You don't have an alternative. Right. Uh, and it was really important for me to feel like that was my choice. And I tell my friends that criticize me about it. This is my feminist choice. 
I'm making this choice for me and for my family. So your friends were criticizing you for taking the year off? Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of my friends, they're like, well, or they'll say you'll get bored. And I'm like, again, boredom is a choice. But if you get bored, if you get bored, you do something else. Right. You'll go back to work. I mean, exactly. Like, okay. Exactly. If I get bored, I'll figure it out. And there are times when I think about if I weren't working, what would I do? And I think it becomes such a way of life that you put all of your energy into work and you think if it's not there, what would you do? What would you do? Right. And yeah. what would I do if I weren't working? Well, but, but the answer comes easily. Once I like get out of that mode for a second, I think I, I know what I'd be doing. I'd like to take photography classes. I'd like to do this. I'd like to go I'd travel. like to learn a language. Yeah, I'd, I'd exactly. like to travel. I'd, I'd like to do, do this. More. So what's one of the things that you learned that you don't do in your marriage? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. So many, so many things. I mean, the thing is I, uh, I don't take enough time to just relax and check out. Uh, and I've been trying to be better about that. I've been trying to be more mindful. I don't take enough time to do nothing. And I think we all need time to do nothing. Um, I spent a lot of time too in Denmark, uh, which also has wonderful parental leave and things like that, but they have a different attitude about work. Most of their workforce is out of the office by 4.30 so they can spend time and have dinner with their family. Um, what I did a novel concept. What a novel concept, but not just to be home and have dinner, but to take a yoga class or go running before they go home to have dinner and not feel guilty and, and not feel yeah, guilty, not, be like, not feel like anyone's being cheated. And I was talking about this with someone this morning and I said, we could do that. We don't need to be at the office till six or eight or nine. We choose to, and we think that that makes us more important. We think busy equals important. Right. They think, why don't you take control of your time and then actually enjoy time outside of the office. I think for a very long time, I did not enjoy time outside of the office because I thought that being busy made me important. It's, it's, a, you're leading right into, I'm done with that. I'm done with so that. We're going to do, I'm done with that because I want to respond to yes. you. But what I'm done with is going too fast. So I get up in the morning, I go straight, I say hello to my husband, kiss him. Hello, go straight to the computer. And I'm just constantly going, going, going. I hardly talk, we, it's not that we don't talk out of me that way, but the conversation is, I was thinking about it the other day when what, he said to me, you, sometimes you just go so fast that you're not yes. breathing. It's like, you're just going, it wasn't about him. It was about me. He wasn't looking at it and saying, you know, you're not doing something for me. It was more of, I watch you and you just aren't breathing. You're not enjoying stuff. You're not you're enjoying just, it because you're, you're going so fast. Right. So I'm done with going so fast and being able to, and part of that is my brain never stops. So I get myself into these situations, right? And I'll explain that. Yeah. So as I'm working on something, I think, ah, I want to do this to top what I'm already doing. Right. So that gives me one more thing to do. And then it's sitting, on, it's sitting on the ledge yes. of the to-do list. It's like right here waiting. Yeah. So it's self-imposed going too fast. Right. So I'm done with going too fast. I love that. What are you done with? That. I'm done with screens in the bedroom. Oh, that's a good one. And so I, I was very similar that I would wake up. And what's terrifying to me is that I now recognize an almost addictive pull to check the phone first thing in the morning. I feel anxiety. I feel anxious. I mean, the same way that when you're addicted to sugar or when you want another drink after a really bad hangover, like I'm addicted to checking my phone. And I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to feel a physical pull to stare at my email at 630 in the morning. And what are you doing to stop that? So I'm done. The phone charges in the living room now. And so we have, we have this um, 
two-bedroom flat in San Francisco in an old Edwardian. And the living room is quite far. It's not like a New York apartment. The living room is quite far away. It's down a very long railroad hallway. And to get there, I would have to go through our kitchen, where, which has the door to the backyard, which is lovely and beautiful. I force myself to go outside every single day before I pick up that phone and look at my email. It's either to walk to the coffee shop, walk the dog, or just go sit in the backyard for 10, 15 minutes and clear my head. I don't want phones in the bedroom. I don't want it to be the last thing I look at before I go to sleep and the first thing I look at when I wake up. And, and we didn't hard? live like that. Yeah, oh, for sure. This I mean, is, I, I grew up in landlines. I know, It was exactly. like getting a phone in your bedroom was a big deal, but you weren't looking at anything. It rang, and nobody called you at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I don't think we think about that enough, about what it's doing to our brains, and also that we're looking at Twitter, and we're looking at the news, and we're looking at our email. So, But it was hard, and it's still hard, and I feel it every morning. So the first day you decided not to do it, did I you feel like I felt terrible. I felt like I was going to throw up. Right. I really <laughs> did. Um, or I felt like I was missing something. You're not missing anything. Right. You could be off email a whole day. You could be off. I So when I met my husband, we met on this boat in the Galapagos because we were both on assignment. We're journalists. And there was no Wi-Fi or internet on the boat and no cell service. I panicked. I didn't know that until I got on the boat. So I was losing my mind. And then this like blonde hippie dude from California introduces himself to me and I'm like, can you be quiet so I can finish checking email with the last vestige of data that we have on this island? Uh, and I ignored him. And then for the next 10 days, I had no choice but to have dinner with the other people on the boat and socialize. I would have been in my room. I would have been writing. I would have been on social media. Uh, you know, how many times have I been like in Paris yeah. and I'm in my room? And you're like, I have to be working right, right now. No, you don't. Right. You don't. And those 10 days, nothing happened that was important, except I met the man I was going to marry because well, I was go. paying attention because now, I was that present. That isn't a great lesson for everyone. What is? I know. I mean, that is like exactly. a great lesson. Because you are present. And I think that's what we're missing. That's what we're, we're just missing. just not present. And we're so distracted by everything. I really want to get present again. So now we're going to go to takeaways. And I've crowdsourced questions from our listeners. So I'm going to ask, and I love this one. Here's a listener taking over my job. What's a question you want to answer that you weren't asked today? Wait, but you've asked so many good questions. That's amazing. Well, thank you. So I'm going to tell, yeah. we'll tell that to the listener who asked that. Thank you. <laughs> like, thank you so much. I don't know. You know, one of the questions that I love is who gets marriage right and who gets marriage wrong. And I think Americans get marriage wrong. I do. I think that Americans love to complain about marriage. And that's another thing I'm done with. I'm done with complaining. Yes. It's not useful. It doesn't do get, about get anything. out, change it, get out, make it do something, but don't complain about it. Fix it. it. And so it was funny because as I was doing these interviews around the world, what, sometimes women would look at me skeptically. And I'm talking about really far flung tribes in northeastern India um, and lawmakers in Sweden. Uh, I would I would be like, so I'm trying to figure out marriage. And they're like, you Americans make marriage so hard. Why do you complain? Why can't you just have a good marriage, appreciate it, have gratitude for it, say thank you, and enjoy yourselves? You like to make it harder than it has to be. And that was interesting for me to hear because it's true. My girlfriends complain about their marriages all the time instead of saying, hey, my husband did this awesome thing. And we don't care because we're not interested in the happy things. We're more interested in hearing other people's sob stories. You know, a friend of mine was in a bad, was having a bad time with his marriage and complaining, complaining, complaining. And he would be like, but, you know, all my friends, their wives do these things too. And he's like, you're the only person I know, Denise, who's happily married. And I was like, 
You're like, that's not true. That's not true. That's I mean, not I, true. I, I think that's great that I'm happily married, but yeah. that can't be true. But I really, I don't complain. I have nothing to complain about. And I love being married to Lewis. I love my life. And I don't either. Right. That's the thing. Like, I love my, I love being married. I love being married to my husband. Sure, he does things that are super annoying sometimes. But, and but, your kids, or your 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 son, who you're going to love, he'll do things that he'll are super do things annoying that are too. Super annoying too. But yeah, but we. I want to wake up every day and feel really excited about my marriage and my life. And so that's another thing that I'm done with. I'm done with waking up and looking at the negative things. Right. And I think when we're waking up and we're looking at our emails and our computers, and especially if we have partners, spouses that don't demand things from us, like you were saying, your husband is great. My husband's great. It's easy to fall into that rut because we don't have somebody being like, oh, you're ignoring me. No, we're not paying. It's kind of like I can do whatever I want to do. Yeah. And life will go on. But by looking at the emails, it's like you're creating yourself a to do list that you don't have to start doing at 630 in the morning instead of just letting the day start and settle in and enjoy it. Well, I can't tell you how much I love, love, love you being here. Your book is fabulous. So tell us where we can find you, where people can find your book. So the book is on sale um, on Amazon at Barnes and Noble at all of your indie bookstores. If they don't have it, tell them to order it. They yes. love ordering take, books. Take for advice people. from Joe's mother-in-law. Yes, exactly. Pull a Patsy Aster yes. and storm your way in there. Um, and we also created a website called HowToBeMarried.us, where we're trying to tell our story. All of our pictures from our travels are up there, and we want to tell other people's marriage stories. So that's our plan well, for now. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to hold thank your hands. You. Thank this you. This is wonderful. Thank you. It's I wonderful. love this. I, me too. I love it. Love it. Love it. Thanks so much for joining us today. And to make sure you're getting Mentoring Moments the moment it's live every Wednesday, please subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review. And check out my show notes on Forbes.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts about... Do you have or want someone in your life to take out the garbage? And what about those French women and their advice to be your husband's mistress? Meaning, are you making a conscious choice to choose that person, your spouse or partner, every day? And do you think that staying busy makes your life more important? So tell me what you're thinking. You can find me. I'm always on Twitter, at Denise Ristari. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. One million. So if you like to read... How do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. So figure out what your next read is going to be. Download Fully Booked right now on the Podcast One app at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Everybody loves honey-glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! 
I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following following the rule of law, is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States Uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.